The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight is September 13th, and it's the Wednesday evening Dharma talk. And tonight I'll be talking about mindfulness of mind. I'll review kind of what we've been doing up through the last several weeks, but specifically focusing toward the end of the talk on mindfulness of the mind, which is the next foundation of mindfulness. So just to bring our mind back to this mindfulness, in a way, the essence of all of the methods in spiritual life is just one way to hold it. But you can explore this as a way of thinking about all the different methods in spiritual life coming down to the cultivation of awareness or mindfulness. And then, you know, you hear something like that and you might think, well, but what about love? Well, when you really look at love and you want to operationalize the practice of love, it's really the, you know, we could say the practice of intimacy, which is being close, being whole, wholly there with another person, let's say. And as an actual training, what we have to do is we have to practice being mindful. You can just see in your own life as your you know, work at cultivating intimacy or kindness or generosity or gratitude, you'll see the important role of this, you know, the quality of the mind being bare or empty of self-centered thinking, empty of strategizing, empty of distractions, and that's really what mindfulness is about. Another important quality of mindfulness is the quality, the deepening quality of equanimity. So in this sense, there's no particular agenda for mindfulness except to see things, know things as they actually are in the moment. It's not in order to. There's not an in order to. It doesn't mean that things don't arise when we are mindful. It does set good things in motion. But if we have the agenda to set good things in motion, it gets in the way of being mindful. So mindfulness, the uh, agenda of mindfulness is mindfulness. It's just to be intimate, to be wholly present with what's happening, what's arising in the moment, what's passing away in the moment. And mindfulness isn't just about focusing in on the breath, that sometimes we think of mindfulness as concentration, or we can get confused between what mindfulness is and what concentration is. So mindfulness has a sense of remembering not just remembering breath coming in, breath going out, but remembering the broader context. 
and Joseph Goldstein, somebody I've studied with, gave uh, this example once in a talk of uh, something he heard a friend he heard from a friend of his who was practicing alone in some cabin in Vermont, and uh, all alone there in the woods in this cabin, the big roaring fire, meditating, and uh, he was you know doing something like following his breath or something. Every once in a while, he'd notice the smell of something burning, and then he'd quickly, you know, bring his attention back, not wanting to wander, until at some point, with not only the smell, but the sound of a fire, and evidently the roof had started on fire. <laughs> so the idea of mindfulness practice, although sometimes it's good to focus or to uh, make a, a sort of a strong intention, to develop a deeper state of concentration, but that's not the intention of mindfulness. Mindfulness is both this quality of being intimate with what's predominant, but it's also a not forgetting of the breadth of experience. You know, we're not forgetting that there's a meditator here. We're not forgetting all of the context. And it's not that we're actively trying to remember all of that, but uh, that remembering happens when the effort is right. So when our effort gets off and we think the only thing that's important is the breath, well, that, that effort actually is a little off. We're just interested in the breath, and then we're interested in whatever arises that's more predominant than the breath. But we're not pushing anything away. We're not making an attempt to sort of not remember being, you know, the, there's a body here sitting in a room. Or whatever the experience of the moment is. This is one of the ways you can notice when the mindfulness is strong. You might be fully, completely present with the breath, and then somebody slams a door or somebody sneezes, and there's no break, there's no surprise in the mind. The mind has no problem going from its very, uh, its very uh, one-pointed and continuous attention to the breath, to the sound of the slamming of the door, or to whatever arises because of that, maybe some irritation. But there's, there's basically no problem with whatever it is that arises. But if we have a more of a samadhi or concentration focus, we can be quite surprised when our concentration is interrupted. It can feel like a, a really big thing, like if a fly lands on us, or if there's a disturbing sound, or whatever, a thought comes in. It can seem like a big problem. But changing phenomena, or changing predominant phenomena, isn't a problem for mindfulness. And so this is just a reminder that one of the qualities of mindfulness is this quality of breath. I'm not forgetting of everything that's arising, even though there may be uh, a particular interest in what's predominant. It's not a rejection of everything else. And not expecting whatever it is that's predominant to remain predominant. So it's the breath coming in, and the breath going out, and the breath coming in. But there's no part of the mind that's attached to that staying that way that anything could happen, anything will, can happen, and will happen.
it's interesting in um, the way the Buddha taught equanimity arises in a couple different places uh, it's one of the four Brahma Viharas some of you know that term Brahma Vihara Brahma in you know in the Pali Sanskrit languages uh, God or heavenly and uh, abode uh, Brahma Vihara Vihara means uh, like a house or an abode so the the abode or the place of heaven. Right? So equanimity is one of these heart states like kindnesses and compassion and empathetic joy or gladnesses and also equanimity. It's one of the four divine abodes. But it's also, uh, equanimity is also associated with deep states of concentration when the mind is one-pointed and, you know, as the mind settles down it, it experiences deeper and deeper states of happiness from like a rapturous kind of happiness to a kind of happiness that has a lot of sweetness and uh, kind of ease to happiness that has deep contentment to happiness that has stillness which sometimes we call peace which is in the this particular model is the deepest kind of happiness and this peacefulness is uh, often associated with equanimity. The peace comes because the mind is completely impartial. It's not picking or choosing. It's not having preferences at this point. It's just whatever arises is what it is. And equanimity is also associated with the, the deepest states of wisdom. Sort of the stage before the insight of awakening is equanimity. So it's interesting how it's both sort of the culmination of the heart of love and wisdom and samadhi, concentration. And so this is a useful thing to remember in terms of mindfulness. You know, as we try to cultivate mindfulness in these four ways that the Buddha suggests, mindfulness of the five physical senses, so tactile experience, sounds, smells, tastes, sights, Mindfulness of feeling, the feeling of pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality, which I've talked about the last few weeks. Mindfulness of mind, which I'll start talking about a little tonight, which is just noticing how the mind is colored. I'll talk more about that in a moment. And mindfulness of whatever is present in the mind, whether it's leading to what's skillful or unskillful, whether it's leading towards suffering or happiness. So really discerning sort of the causality or the how things are unfolding towards suffering or towards happiness given what's in the mind that's the fourth foundation so regardless of what we're noticing whether we're noticing the body or the feeling tone of pleasantness or the mind state of aversion or the mind state of kindness or the skillfulness or unskillfulness in the mind no matter what we're noticing Ultimately, what helps us really see clearly is the development of equanimity. What we're really doing is we're using mindfulness both to see things as they are, but we're using mindfulness also to realize this way of being in the moment. Because the, the ultimate expression of mindfulness is equanimity. Because if we're going to know things perfectly as they are 
we can't know things perfectly if there's anything besides equanimity. Because anything besides equanimity is some kind of agenda or attachment or spin. So sometimes we use the simile or the metaphor of a mirror for this quality of mindfulness that simply reflects or simply knows this is how it is now. And a, you know, an undistorted mirror is like equanimity because a mirror simply reflects. It has no preferences for what it reflects. Whatever arises in front of the mirror is reflected, is known. And so that's a nice metaphor for this quality of mindfulness, just to see things clearly or to know this is how it is. So in your practice, you know, you might have, you might sit down for your morning sit, 45 minutes, and it might be a hell realm of painful body sensations or disturbing emotions, painful memories, or just a lot of craving, you know, one thought about the future after another. Or it might be this beautiful stillness, peacefulness. But whatever it is, if, you, if you're going to assess your practice, which is pretty dangerous, it's better to just do the practice without assessing it. But if you feel after the practice you want to assess how it was, then the way to assess it isn't whether it was pleasant or unpleasant, whether there was a stream of one-pointedness and perfect stillness, or a rocky road of pain and mental affliction. The question was to the, the degree of equanimity, so that the mind was uh, undisturbed by the disturbances, if that makes sense. Oh, now it's like this, and now it's like that. So the heart, the mind, unshakable by the particular conditions. And actually, maybe surprisingly, the pleasant rides are actually harder to be equanimous with than the unpleasant rides. So when our meditation is really rocky, over time we get better and better at just receiving, knowing this is how it is, and not reacting to the unpleasant mind states or the unpleasant physical states. And then we have to learn how to be equanimous, not attached, not clinging to the pleasant states, to the calmness, to the tranquility, to the joy, to the peacefulness, to the light or brightness in the mind, but just to see it as ordinary phenomena. Oh, peace is like this. Calmness is like this. Happiness is like this. Not to let those pleasant, wholesome experiences turn into some story. I'm enlightened, or now I'm great. I used to be bad, now I'm good. I hope everyone notices. <laughs> Maybe I should wear a sign. So it's nice just to remember that there, you know, mindfulness has different stages. The practice has different stages to it. But these stages are cyclical. It's not like, okay, for the first 10 years of my practice, I'm here, and then I'm here, and then I'm here, and then I'm here. We have to, it's really important that we understand the full range of practice because some moments, maybe, maybe most of the moments, 
we're really at this early phase of practice, which is trying to be in the moment without being overwhelmed by the um, concepts, the tendency of the mind to explain to itself what's happening, and then to be caught in the concept, to be identified, and to lose touch with things as they are. We call call that, and just in terms of language, we call that dhamma or dharma. The dharma means things as they are, as opposed to conceptual reality, seeing things in terms of our ideas, inter- interpretations. We're seeing things, uh, I guess you could say, in a, in a sense, pre-verbally. doesn't even mean that there isn't thinking. But thinking is seen as just a phenomena, mental phenomena. We're not confused by the content of the words or the language in the mind. It's just language, just thoughts, concepts. And then if we're with sensation, then the sensations, it's not our, there's not a thought, this is my breath coming in. So it's not that, you know, idea of breath even as a noun is a concept. So what is the experience of breath without a concept? Or what is touching as the air comes and touches the nostrils? What is that experience of touching without an image or concept? Or the belly expanding or contracting? What is that experience without concepts? Without the experience being confused, distorted by concept? So that's the first part of practice. So you see, this is this itself is quite radical to learn to have moments in the beginning it's just moments to have moments of being present where the mind isn't distorted isn't disturbed by the concepts or interpretations and then in as those moments develop as there are more of those moments and some of those moments strung together moments of clear seeing seeing dhamma seeing the way it is then we begin to understand uh, karma or conditionality, how things come and go causally. Uh, there's this web of supporting conditions that when something arises like aversion in the mind, it doesn't appear out of nowhere, but there's this web of causes and conditions that support, that arise in conjunction with the aversion. And when the aversion passes out of the mind, there are causes and conditions that support that falling away. And we begin to see how the mind can be more skillful and how the mind can be less skillful, how the mind gets caught up in self-centered drama, how the mind lets go of self-centered drama. Because we're not confused by the story or the concepts, the ideas, we can actually see how they form and how they deconstruct. And then this second phase of mindfulness, where you could say, I mean, if you want to call this place, this place of practice, give it a name, you could say we're learning about skillfulness and unskillfulness, how suffering comes to be and how non-suffering comes to be. So this is the path, you know, or the place of practice of the Four Noble Truths. There is dukkha, there is stress, suffering. It arises due to causes that we can see moment by moment in our mind, in our practice. And 
there's a way for that cause not to arise, which is then the cause of non-suffering, non-affliction, no, no weight, no burden in the heart and mind. And there's a way of living that supports that not forgetting or that way of being, that way of relating. So that's the second phase of practice. And the third phase of practice is even more radical where, where there's nobody trying to be skillful. It's where we have moments where we're not, uh, there's nobody, as uh, I think Tanisro Bhikkhu talks about it, there's nobody, there's no input to the causal stream. So you can imagine when the mirror is just the mirror, the mirror is no longer affecting what's going on in front of it. But as long as we're a meditator trying to be mindful, trying to be equanimous, then that, that means we're having input into, into the causal stream. There's a sense of mark, maybe a very wholesome sense in this case. And because there's a sense of mark, then there's some feeding. We're feeding the causal stream. We are having an effect. But when the practice in moments is very pure, like a perfect mirror, then there's no input to the causal stream. Is that making sense, at least intellectually? So that's just one way to hold the whole spectrum of mindfulness from the very beginning part. And again, this beginning part will happen, as far as I can tell, forever which is not being deluded by concepts, trying to have moments of a direct, a more direct, non-conceptual seeing or knowing of mental or physical phenomena. And then when there's some continuity with that kind of seeing, then we're, there's a sort of investigation or learning that's happening of how the mind can relate skillfully, be skillfully in a moment without creating stress, the stress that comes from aversion and the stress that comes from attachment and the stress that comes from delusion, which is a kind of numbing out or uh, uh, choosing not to see, not to know. Right? So those are the three ways we create stress. Numbing out or not knowing, refusing to know, knowing with the, the agenda of aversion, trying to get rid of what we don't like, push it away, strike at it, or trying to grab a hold of what we like. And then this last stage is where <clears throat> that drops away, not even somebody trying to be skillful. So it's a radical letting go into, uh, into knowing happening, things being known, but, but nothing beyond that. It's just things being known conditions being known. No, there's not a mark who wants to be connecting and sustaining with the breath. Or there isn't even a sense of somebody not wanting to get attached. So it's a, it's a really letting go of the agenda of being skillful and avoiding unskillfulness. That's not even present then in that last stage. So I'll read a nice passage. I think I think it's a nice passage from an article Joko Beck wrote. Charlotte Joko Beck. Joko is her 
given name from her Zen teacher. So she's a Zen teacher now herself, has been for a long time in San Diego, although she's she's got to be in her mid to late 80s now, I think. She's written a couple of wonderful books if you are interested in checking her out. And this is uh, just an article that's called Body Itself. It's from a book of women Buddhist teachers called Being Bodies. The Paradox of Buddhist uh, Embodiment, something like that. I forget the subtitle. Being Bodies is the name of the book, though. And this is the very last two or three paragraphs of this article she wrote. So the secret of life, we get the secret of life, <laughs> that we've all been looking for is just this, to develop through sitting and daily life practice the power and courage to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment. So this is this first stage of mindfulness. Just to learn to be in the body as body, not in our interpretation of the body, not with this agenda to fix the body or to get rid of this or to sit right, but just to completely meet, open, know body as body. Hardness is hardness, softness is softness, coolness is coolness, heat is heat, tingling is tingling, stabbing is stabbing, all that, and then sounds and seeing, all the physical experience. Even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness, we learn to rest in our experience without thought, to sink into a non-dual state, even if we can stay only a few seconds at first. With time and development, we can learn to rest there for long periods of time. As we rest in this non-duality, we leave behind the phenomenal world of problems and dualistic solutions. So a lot of the times I'll call this self-centered thinking or self-centered drama, self-centered stories. We start with including and clarifying our psychological world, right? So this is that middle stage now of mindfulness practice because we begin to understand what's skillful and unskillful. Given that we have a mind and body, given that we have this sense of self, what are more skillful ways of relating to this mind-body experience and what are less skillful ways of relating to it? So we're talking not philosophically, but moment to moment. In this moment, what is the appropriate way of relating to the experience of the mind and body? Whatever's coming up in the mind or whatever's coming up in the body. And we learn directly through trial and error. You know, if I relate with aversion, even if it peer, appears to be skillful, like Okay, if I can only get rid of this judgment, then I'll be happy. But wanting to get rid of judgment is, of course, aversion. And so we, we get, oh, I thought that would be skillful, but it just leads to more tension, stress. I feel burdened by wanting to get rid of my judgment. Maybe there's another way of relating to judgment. So we go back to the drawing board, and there it is. Judgment arises again pretty shortly. And then we have another opportunity to relate. So I think this is what Joko means, Joko Beck means by clarifying our psychological world as a self. But we end in a transformation that cannot really be described 
in words. We can only suggest a way of living that is free, compassionate, functional. And in this way, our so-called problems can be dealt with in a more open and compassionate manner. So this is the third stage where there may be problems, but they're not a problem for anybody. Right? We're still a human being with pain, with difficult memories, with inclinations. But there's also a mind or an understanding that can let that be, like that mirror. Can just let the problem, let the painful memory, let the painful sensation be. And to let the wise response arise without trying to make it arise. And to let go of the unskillful response when it arises. You know, we also have the impulse to slap it away if it's painful or to grab a hold of it. But to let that fall away without pushing it away. So this is really, it's like this radical trust that wisdom arises on its own. I don't have to take the stance of Mark who has to be wise or who has to be skillful. And so that's the freedom which is naturally compassionate without trying to be compassionate and naturally functional, organically functional without trying to be functional in life. So we don't, you know, as the practice progresses, we don't become space cadets or you know, we don't forget how to live in the world and to be a partner or to be a parent or to be a citizen or to be an employee, a professional or whatever we do. It doesn't get in the way of being a human being. And she ends this section by saying, call this enlightenment if you wish, but please remember, we do not do this bodily experiencing just once or even in one sitting. We are describing a lifetime process with many ups and downs, probably one that is never complete. It doesn't matter. What does matter is the slow, slow shift in the way we see and live our lives. This is practice and an end to our substitute life. Actually, I think that's the name of this article, Substitute Life. And it's in the section of the book called Body Itself. So it's, although it's useful to think about those three stages in mindfulness practice, the easy way to remember it is that the same, the same operation or the same, there's a, the same transformational element in each of those stages, which is non-clinging, non-attachment. So in the beginning where we're just trying not to, to, to sort of meet the breath without being disturbed or distorted by our interpretation or concept of the breath, we have to practice not clinging because that thought of the breath or that image of the breath is going to keep coming up in the mind because we're in the habit of projecting our story moment by moment. That's just what the mind is doing. So the initial practice is just learning not to cling to it, not to get identified with the, the thinking that's going on. Having the thought, I've got to stop thinking, of course, is just another thought. So 
the way to begin to uh, slow down the thinking is to practice not being confused by it, which is a non-identification with thought, a non-clinging to thought, not getting caught by the thoughts. It's the same with the second and the third stage. So we just remember non-clinging, as the Buddha said, you know, in many different ways, that the essence of practice is not clinging to anything, not clinging to self, not clinging to I, me, or mine, not clinging to anything. And understanding this means we've understood everything. If we practice that, we're practicing everything we need to practice. So it's really nice that it's so simple, or only easy. (laughs) So now I want to spend a little bit of time before we end just introducing mindfulness of mind. This is the third establishment or the third foundation of mindfulness practice. As I mentioned several weeks ago when I began the series of talks on mindfulness, probably the most well-known discourse that the Buddha gave was his talk on the four foundations or the four establishments of mindfulness. And they're not necessarily, I don't think at all actually, meant to be separate practices, you know, mindfulness of the body, the five physical senses or mindfulness of feeling, or mindfulness of mind, or mindfulness of the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the mind. It's really an integrated awakening. We're sort of waking up, and we should always emphasize in the beginning what's easiest to be paying attention to. And for most of us, most of the time, the anchor for our attention will be the body. It's the most dense or gross part of our experience, so it's most accessible. And we choose, as most of you know at least, in this tradition, you know, we generally choose a particular anchor for the mind, the attention, so that it knows when nothing is strongly predominant what to turn toward. So for most of us it means the breath, that there could be several different anchors but there should be an anchor we use most of the time, which I would recommend be the breath or some sensation in the body that's relatively neutral, not so charged with a lot of emotion, so that it's relatively easy to be mindful of. And it should be relatively easy to see in any given moment, not something really subtle. Now, of course, the breath becomes subtle, but generally the breath only becomes subtle when the mind is quiet. And so the mind, when the mind is quiet, it's better able to see what's subtle. But if we're kind of doing, going about our day, then the breath is usually pretty gross. It's pretty easy to feel the breath moving. So it's a nice anchor whether we're sitting formally in meditation or just going about our day. We can just tap in a few seconds here, 20 seconds there, one second over here, just connecting with the breath, landing with the breath dropping into that non-conceptual presence. Ah, like this. Expanding is like this. Contracting is like this. Touching is like this. Like this. So just one moment of non-conceptual being is a real healing moment. Because, you know, every time we touch that place, it undermines our addiction and identification with concepts. 
They're going to rush back in. But when they rush back in, we're going to hold all of our stories, all our concepts, all our fears and hopes and dreams. We're going to hold it in a different way. The grip won't be so tight. Because we'll understand there's this other reality, there's sort of conceptual reality, and then there's this more visceral present moment, moment to moment reality. And that's healing. So don't underestimate this uh, devotion to just having these moments. And of course, this is a lot like our regular sitting practice, because our mind is wandering. I mean, what would you, what statistic would you put on? You know, when you look at your half an hour, or 45 minute, or 60 minute sit, what percent of the time is your mind just spinning with thought? Even if it's the thought, I'm following my breath. That's just thinking. I'm with my breath. I'm just with my breath. I'm doing a good job. Coming in, going out. Those are all thoughts. Coming in, going out. If it's just on that level, and we can get quite tranquil watching our thoughts, being absorbed in thinking. You know, like if you read a really good novel, the mind gets tranquil. Or if you get absorbed in a nice movie, the mind gets very tranquil. Or if you do prayers or repeat mantras, the mind is very tranquil. So this, of course, uh, if done right, can be wholesome. But it's not mindfulness. Just because it's wholesome doesn't mean it's mindfulness. It's wholesome because it's better to be calm than it is to be agitated. We're just less likely to make do unskillful things, like to act out in violence if we're really calm. But the whole point of mindfulness is to see clearly, to have insight. So we're cultivating mindfulness of Dhamma, of the way things are, the way it is. The purpose isn't to calm the mind. The purpose is to calm the mind in order to see things as they are, to have insight, and to understand uh, the limitations of concepts and the weight of concepts, even really wholesome concepts, even really wholesome stories, like I'm here living for the benefit of all beings, and I just want to make the world a better place before I die. I mean, that's a really wholesome thought. And I could be living with that thought, you know, mostly, predominantly, through most of my life. But that doesn't mean I'll learn much with that thought, because I'll be trapped with the sense of a mark who wants to live skillfully. And that's a burden, actually. So we want to go beyond the concept, even wholesome concepts. And that's what distinguishes mindfulness practice, inside practice, from other tranquility practices, concentration practices, which can be very healing in the sense of training the mind to calm and to experience deep states of tranquility but don't necessarily lead to insight, sort of a transforming under, uh, a transformation in our understanding, how we relate to all experience. That's the definition of insight. Insight, whether it's small or big, transforms how the heart or mind relates to experience. So from relating from a self-centered point of view to uh, a view that's uh, less less fixed with a sense of self. 
less grounded in a, uh, a sense of self. Bhante Gunaratna has this nice book. Um, if you want more background on the whole Eightfold Path, which is what I've been talking about this year during the Sunday and Wednesday night talks, it's called Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness, Walking the Buddhist Path. And Bhante Gunaratna is a Sri Lankan monk, but he's lived in the States for many decades. And he has a monastery called Bhavana Society in Western in West Virginia. Um, so this is his chapter on mindfulness of the mind. And this is what he says. You give each mental state total attention as it arises without doing anything specific about it and without allowing yourself to get involved or to follow the thought or feeling. You simply watch as each state or quality rises and falls. This rising and falling is the nature of the entire mind. Every moment, in fact, many times every moment, mind arises, reaches its peak, and passes away. It is the same for any mind of any being in the universe. The more you observe this rising and falling of all mental qualities, the more volatile you know them to be. Seeing this volatility, you gain insight into the impermanent phenomena called mind. See, now, when we have a thought like, uh, boy, this is really interesting. I wish I had started practice when I was 20. So we have that thought in our mind. And it has a kind of fixedness to it, like it, like it's relating or uh, it's referring to some real truth, something fixed. Like, there really is a guy here who wishes he had done his practice, started his practice when he was younger. But when we're experiencing thoughts, seeing thoughts uh, phenomenologically, like as natural phenomena rising and passing, not getting confused by the content of the thought, but just seen as a mental phenomena that comes and goes, then even though, even with that level of seeing, we still can understand the contents, the content of the thought. But the content of the thought has no solidity, no permanence. It doesn't refer to anything because we see it's just a little blip. That's just that thought. And then it's gone. And then there's another thought. So in this way, thoughts are not distorting because we're not uh, constructing a permanent established thing that the thought refers back to. The thought is just what it is. It's just a little blip of energy. So it's not that we don't understand the thought in the sense of, oh, that's a thought about me wishing that I had started practice when I was 20. There's still that conceptual understanding, but there's no, it's that understanding isn't distorting the awareness because it's not causing the construction of a, like, oh yeah, there's a me here. And then there's the disappointment, because if there's really a me here who has a wish that wasn't fulfilled, then there's got to be disappointment. Oh, yeah, there's the disappointment. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I wish. You know? and, then, and then because of that disappointment, you know, we feel, oh, now, see, now I can't practice now, because I've got this regret going. You know? And then, oh, and on and on. So the getting caught up in that whole projection of 
like solidity, like it's really referring back. It just leads us directly, we call that unskillfulness, because it leads directly to stress, to feeling burdened, to, to suffering. So, but there's a difference when we see it phenomenologically, as Bhante Gunaratana is talking about. I'll just read one more paragraph here. Thus, the more you focus on mind itself, the less solid it seems. Like everything else that exists, it is always changing. Moreover, moreover, you discover there is no permanent entity. No one is running the movie projector. All is flux, all is flow, all is process. In reality, who you are is simply this constant flow of changing moments of mind. Since you cannot control this process, you have no choice but to let go. And letting go, you experience joy. And you taste for an instance, instant the freedom and happiness that is the goal of the Buddhist path. Then you know that this mind can be used to gain wisdom. Watching, watching the mind leads to insight. Insight leads to letting go. Letting go leads to real happiness, the happiness of non-clinging. And what arises from that, the natural manifestation of non-clinging, is compassion. It's the fruit of practice. Or we could say non-self-centeredness is the fruit of practice. Mindfulness is the method. Insight or wisdom is the transforming element of practice. Mindfulness leads to insight. Insight leads to natural, unstoppable, compassionate action. A life relatively more and more free of self-centered drama, self-centered fear, self-centered craving. So I'll continue talking about mindfulness of mind for the next couple weeks. And you might just want to make this your homework, both in your formal sitting practice and then during the day. And it's very easy. Just begin by noticing how the mind is colored. Is it colored by, and there's these three roots, wholesome roots and three unwholesome roots. Greed or craving is one of the unwholesome. And then its opposite would be renunciation or generosity or non-greed, right? So notice the presence or absence of greed. Notice the presence or absence of aversion. Notice the presence or absence of delusion. Sort of uh, delusion means uh, choosing not to see clearly, choosing to ignore, choosing confusion, as opposed to clarity, understanding this is how it is. Now, we can be clear even about confusion. So being clear doesn't mean the mind isn't foggy. It just means that the mirror sees this is how it is now. Confusion's like this. Okay? So that's our homework. Noticing the presence or absence of these three things, greed, anger, or delusion, or non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion in the mind. That's as much as we have to do, just noticing if it's there or not there. And we'll continue talking and discussing it next week. But we have about 10 minutes now. If you have any questions about the talk tonight, or if you have uh, any uh, comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group, what comes to mind? Mm-hmm. About one-pointedness, and does that come in the continuity of being mindful? Yeah, yeah. So in um, the Buddha taught different ways. 
he taught, uh, one way he taught is to really develop a lot of one-pointedness and then to begin to develop um, insight or wisdom. And of course, just to develop that one-pointedness, you need a, uh, you're going to have a lot of distractions. And in order to put those distractions down, you need to use wisdom, insight. So there is the path of developing a lot of concentration first and then turning to insight practice. But there's also uh, a tradition in Buddhist practice of, de of developing the concentration and the insight hand in hand. And that's usually the way we teach here, especially when we're not on retreat. You know, as lay people in the world, we tend to uh, encourage the development of samadhi and insight together hand in hand, which is why we tend to use the breath, the, the natural phenomena of the breath as an anchor for the attention as opposed to other concentration objects because the breath is a natural phenomenon in that regard. Other thoughts or comments, questions? Selena? Mm -hmm. That's great. It's great that you've done that reflection. And uh, and just keep that reflection alive. Like there is this quality of mind or heart that is has this mirror-like nature. And uh, you're absolutely right. The, the, the tendency of that quality, uh, given the way our mind operates now, our tendency is to notice the reflection in the mirror and we get fixated and so one way to you know to use this metaphor a little bit more one way to describe practice is to relax the fixation on what's being reflected in the mirror and realizing the nature of the mirror itself undistorted by what's being reflected now we can't stop the mind from reflecting the conditions that are arising and passing away that's its nature is to know. One of the you know the quality of the mind is to know, but we can we can uh, practice not being fixated, identified with what's being known, and uh, take refuge in the knowing, because the knowing one of the qualities of knowing is it's effortless. Well, that's that's a beautiful thing to take refuge in because there's a lot of freedom in that. And there's a universality about that knowing, because there's no preferences involved. There's no this or that in struggling. So the practice, one way to talk about the practice is the heart, that sort of essence of the heart, knowing the essence of the heart. And the original sin, you know, I like that Christian metaphor of the original sin, eating the apple. The original sin is the mind, heart, getting fixated on what's being known. And then 
that sort of sets something in motion, which in Buddhism we call the cycles of samsara. And it's one of the characteristics of the cycles of samsara is to be fixated on what's going on in terms of what's being known or the conditions. And it's that fixation, identification or attachment that keeps the cycle going. And so the way out of the cycle is to cultivate a heart-mind that relates with non-attachment. Uh, well, the idea of the mind is here, of course, has been around for a long time, and generally the concept of a mirror requires somebody to look at the mirror. And so the concept of the mirror mind is always the idea that inside there's some kind of little homunculus who's looking at the mirror and seeing what's being reflected in reality. Of course, that has the regression problem is that the mirror mind is a little homunculus that needs another little homunculus looking at the mirror mind of the homunculus, which requires another even tinier being Yeah, and the, and the point of the metaphor isn't to represent reality. In fact, I don't think any of the, the teachings of the Buddha are meant to represent what you might call absolute reality. They're simply, the way to evaluate the different metaphors or uh, teachings is whether it leads to more stress, dukkha, or not. You know, so just to deal with the teachings in a pragmatic way. And, uh, and you know, if you read the teachings or the discourses of the Buddha, he used many different ways of teaching depending on who he was talking to and where that person was at and their strengths or weaknesses. And so we have to do the same thing. In our culture now, you know, we have access to so many different teachings and so many different angles on the teaching. And it, it's really important to take uh, responsibility to use what's useful and to understand, to even begin to understand, like, I have to I have to have my own barometer and the fortunate thing is we have our own barometer and it's called suffering and it's why it's really good to put this central in our practice our own direct experience of stress or burden being burdened by life or burdened by experience and then when we have a very clear sense of that then it's relatively easy to evaluate the various metaphors or in Buddhism, we call them skillful means. Is this skillful means alleviating this feeling of being burdened by the conditions of the moment? Or is the feeling of being burdened increasing? So it's really nice, because I think Scott's right. We can, get, we can really get uh, caught if we want to turn the skillful means into some representation of absolute reality. Um, because it's a dead end. It's, uh, it's really more useful to see what pragmatically works with your own mind and heart given your particular situation and alleviating the tendency of the mind to create mental stress and worry and fear and desire and what supports the, uh, the letting go of those afflictive states. And we're going to have to leave it here tonight but we'll pick it up again next week. I think we have to end, Scott, unless it's very but short. I just wanted to add, you know, a couple months ago, we talked about going to the show at the, at the Science Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, 
about the body in, in conjunction with, with discussing the Sadi Katana. And I don't know if, if that's come up since. You know, remember the idea of the field trip? Um, right. You know, looking at the, the first of the meditation, the foundations on the body and then going to the science museum and looking at the, at, at the exhibits of the body and then, and then coming back and seeing how that affects one's. And we, I, I didn't pick it up at that time, but, you know, it, the exhibit's been, been extended until, until early December. And so, um, you know, if there are people here who might be interested in the idea of doing a field trip um, based on that sutra, in a sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great idea. Are you willing to help organize? I mean, maybe it could just be, it could just be done informally. If people want to meet at the back of the room, who might be interested in seeing that and having a discussion about it, that would be great. I think it's a, it could be quite transforming. I think to see those, uh, just to break our idea of body, break up the concept of body that we we hold. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.